I have a different scripture reading here, but it's part of the one that was already read. Psalm 32, 5 through 7, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass, compass me about with songs of deliverance. A message this Sabbath, salvation in motion. Salvation in motion, the sanctuary, part two. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are better to us than we are to ourselves. Now, Lord, once again, I ask that you make me just a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. But upon that nail, Lord, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. It does us no good if people see me today, Lord. We need to see you. So we are asking for an extra outpouring of your Holy Spirit. I ask now, Lord, that you bind the devil, that you vanquish uh, his minions and fill this place with your Holy Ghost. This is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. All right. We're going to jump into a story. I wish I had time to give the whole story, but I feel the sanctuary comes alive better as you tell it inside the stories, stories of the scripture. So this is one of, one of the most interesting stories of the entire Bible, definitely of the Old Testament. We jump into a, into a, a space here where the prophet Nathan has approached King David. 2 Samuel 12, verse 1 says, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David. And he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drank of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. The Bible says, and David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man that has done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. One of the most poignant verses concerning King David is found in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 7. Nathan looks at him. And Nathan says to David, you are the man. You, David, are that man. To give you the context of this 
parable and the interaction between the prophet and the king. David should have gone to war, but instead he stayed back in his palace. You know the story. One night he goes wandering up onto the roof of the palace and sees a woman bathing, according to the scripture, an incredibly beautiful woman. David is overtaken by his lust and calls for her to be brought to him. And long story short, he lays with her and uh, she winds up pregnant. David does not admit his sin. Instead, he sets her husband up, who is one of his uh, most loyal soldiers, to go to the hottest part of the battle and then instructs the armies of Israel to withdraw. So that as they withdraw, he is killed by the enemy. In one failed swoop, David, who was called a man after God's own heart, David, who went to a sword fight with a sling and stones and slew a giant. David, who had fought wars for the kingdom of Israel and had brought great glory to God in so doing. David not only commits adultery, he commits murder. Nathan goes on to say in 2 Samuel chapter 12, 7, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you the, thy master's house and thy master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. Here's what's interesting. God says, and if it had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. David, if you wanted more, all you had to do was ask. You didn't have to steal somebody else's wife and, and put her husband to death. Verse 9, wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and have slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and has taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against thee of thine own house. And I'll take your wives from before your eyes and give them unto your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, God says. But I will do this thing before all Israel. And before the sun. Verse 13 is also critical. Verse 13, and David said to Nathan, ha, I have sinned against the Lord. I want you to understand that one of the reasons this story is so important as we are about to get into the, the sanctuary is not just Nathan's approach. A lot of folk, when they see someone doing wrong, they want to come in and knock over tables and kick over chairs. They want to announce your sin as loud as they can and berate you with your, um, the, your actions. Nathan doesn't do that. Instead, he gives David a parable. Here's why that's so deep. David must admit his own penalty. 
But it's not just Nathan's approach. It's David's response here in verse 13. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Many others, remember when Saul was caught sinning? Uh, actually, it was, the, it was the children of Israel. Why you hear the, the bleeding of the sheep? And It was their fault. When Adam and Eve got caught, Eve said, Adam said, it was the woman you gave me, Lord. It's partially your fault. You shouldn't have gave her to me. And she said, it was not my fault. It was the serpent. You shouldn't have made the serpent talk. All through the Bible, people find excuses. Here, David finds no excuse. David simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. And you have to understand, when David says this, he accepts a death penalty. According to the law of Moses, what David is guilty of is, is worthy of death. He understands that he now, by admitting his sin, should be put to death, as the law says. So if, you, you know, if there was a reason to try and hide or lie or find an excuse, he could have done it. He doesn't say, what was she doing on the roof? He doesn't say, I tried to get this man to go back with his wife, if you know the story. David says, nope, I sinned. And let me tell you something, church. Part of the problem for us, as many of us as Christians, is we're not willing to say, I sinned. We want to find some other reason, some other way, some other explanation. But there's power in confessing and admitting we have done wrong. Now watch this. Spirit of Prophecy says in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 723, she says, The prophet's rebuke touched the heart of David. Conscience was aroused. His guilt appeared in all its enormity. His soul was bowed in penitence before God. With trembling lips he said, I have sinned against the Lord. All wrong done to others reaches back from the injured one to God. David had committed a grievous sin toward both Uriah and Bathsheba, and he keenly felt this. But infinitely greater was his sin against God. The reason the sanctuary message is so important is exactly encapsulated in that. When we sin, we sin against the God of heaven. David now, to make the story come to life, when Uriah said, God has put away your sin, you're not going to die, David would have had to go to the sanctuary and deal with his sin. This was before Solomon's temple was built, obviously. In fact, David was, would have been able to build the temple, but God said, nope, you have too much blood on your hands. You can't do it. That was before he even did this whole uh, debacle here. And so as you would, if you were in the wilderness, if you were in the wilderness, as you can see the picture here, you see that there are all around are the tents of the tribes of Israel, all facing toward the sanctuary. If you had sinned as David sinned, you would now have to go to the sanctuary. And oftentimes we talk about the furniture in the sanctuary, but I want to, to say that the process of salvation and of redemption that is housed in the sanctuary begins before you set foot near the sanctuary. The outer fence. If you read Exodus 27, 9 through 19, I won't read it here, 
But the outer fence is the first thing that David would have seen. If he was going toward the tabernacle to make, um, to make sacrifice, as he would have walked toward it, he would have been walking up to uh, white linen sheets that were seven and a half feet high. Why were they so high? Because the, no one would have been able to look in over the fence. As you approached the sanctuary, it was an intimidating, daunting place that spoke to the righteousness of Christ even before you got to the sanctuary. All around was white. There were 20 by 10 pillars, 20 up the east side, 20 up the west side, 10 across the north and the south side. Up, 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 the, up, and, up the east and west side, it was the opposite. So 20 on the north and the south. The tribe of Judah sat east of the gate where you would enter. And what I found fascinating is that at the top of each of these pillars was silver with a ring of silver. And then there was a cord that was taken and a peg that pegged them into the ground so that each pillar was, was, was held up by these cords even as you walked up, you would see the, the rows of pillars and you would see the pegs, each with significance, even before you set foot inside the temple. Sixty pillars. And as you came, you'd see the fine linen. And the fine linen would represent the righteousness of Christ. Revelation 19.8 says it like this. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. As you walked up, what you were, what you were, as you were carrying, remember, you're carrying your sacrifice in your hand, or you're leading it by a rope. As you get near to the sanctuary, I want you to, to, to experience the sanctuary. In the wilderness, they would have, they would have been, at, at, but during the day, there would have been a giant cloud sitting over the Holy of Holies, but on the other end of on the, in the courtyard where the, where the altar was, which we'll get to today, you would have seen smoke coming up. As you got near, you would hear people singing praises to God, and it would have been mixed in with the bleeding of the animals. If you came from any side, but the side where the tribe of Judah was, all you would see is white. You wouldn't be able to see in. There was only one way in. There were pegs. And here's how even the pegs, as I was studying, I was like, man, this thing is this, it's, it's so deep. Even the pegs all the way around have meaning. Look at Ezra, Ezra 9 and verse 8. It says, and now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. The pegs were like a measure of revival. Are y'all getting this? As you begin to come close, you could count the pegs and know how close you were getting to the gate. You knew how far you were just by the pegs on the ground. They anchored the sanctuary to the ground where it sat. And as Isaiah 22, 23 says, I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. But of course, then you'd come around the corner. And everything would be different. Unless you came from the side where the tribe of Judah was, 
Exodus 27 and verse 16, and for the gate of the court shall be a hanging of 20 cubits of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen wrought with needlework and their, and their pillars shall be four and their sockets four. These were wider panels than the white linen. They represent Christ the gate. I think that's deep. It represents Christ and they're wider so that everyone could come in. They're wider because it's an invitation. They're a different color to stand out, but even the colors have meaning. A blue is the color of the law, purple the color of royalty, scarlet the color of the blood of Christ, and white the color of his righteousness. Those are the colors. There's no, there are no cherubim drawn on the outside on the gate. As you get to the gate, you see the colors, and you have to uh, pull up, and some say, pull up the curtain to get in. You have to prostrate. You have to bow down to step inside. That's why Jesus says, and it would have meant more to them than maybe it even means to us. In John 10 and verse 9, he says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter, he shall be what? To enter was salvation. To enter the gate meant that you had to recognize, as David did, that you had sinned. Just the step foot inside the sanctuary was a statement of your acknowledgement of your sin. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's only one way in, one way to the Father. No cherubim on the door. The sun would rise in the east and flash through the gate. And as you stepped in through the gate, which represents Christ, the four panels that were there, all in those colors. As you stepped in, pulling your animal or carrying your animal in, you would walk in. And this is why the scripture says that you're supposed to enter the gates a certain way. And here's where it is. It says in Psalms 100 and verse 4, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Psalm 22 and verse 3 says this, But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. There's so much meaning to this. First of all, it teaches you how to pray. Yep, to pray. You should never, when you pray, you are going to enter into the presence of God. Amen? So if you're going to enter into his presence, Psalm 100 verse 4 says, you ought never enter into his presence complaining, arguing, quarreling with God, asking for vengeance on somebody else. When you come into prayer, the first thing you should do, you should be intentional and spend time at the beginning of your prayer thanking God, praising God. Why? Because it takes faith to walk into the sanctuary. And the best evidence of your faith is your praise in many ways. Before anything has been done for you, before you've brought your sin, before you've asked for help for anyone else, you ought to thank God in advance that he can do what he says he's going to do. You come into the, you ought to come in with thanksgiving and with praise. There's no other way in. So you ought to enter with thanksgiving and with praise. It is salvation in motion. As you go in, you walk in, and the next thing you see is here. It's the bronze altar. And so as you walk in, you, you see a priest standing next to it. 
And this thing is amazingly designed and made. Uh, and, and as you study, you can do a whole session just on the bronze altar. It is the largest piece of furniture in the entire sanctuary. Bronze is often associated in the Bible with judgment. So on the other end of the sanctuary complex is the mercy seat. But when you first come in, you deal with something that represents justice. When a common Israelite approached the tabernacle with his sacrifice and passed through the entrance gate, he found that between him and the tabernacle structure stood an altar with a high priest standing beside it. The altar was perfectly square. In fact, here's how interesting it is. The, the sides of the altar are the exact same length as the height of the linen walls of the fence. It's as if to say what was the height that kept you out if you weren't willing to come in has now been laid down to make it easy for you to make your sacrifice. It was only about four and a half feet high. And it was pretty amazingly designed and built. As you can see, there are, there are four horns all on each side. And I said, why are there horns on this thing? There's a grate in the middle. It's, it's uh, um, acacia wood again, but all covered in like one piece of bronze. So that it's one thing. The whole thing is one piece of furniture. The fire that is lit inside of it is the very fire that we talked about last week when God caught, when fire came down and lit uh, the altar. This is the same fire. It is an eternal fire that is never to go out. The only fire that could be used to go and light the, um, uh, the incense inside the holy place. And so you can see it's juxtaposition when you walk in. It's the first thing that you see when you enter into the courtyard. It would have been a quite an amazing place as you looked at it because it wasn't just a piece of furniture. It was actively being used. Salvation was in motion. In other words, the priest at the time of the daily sacrifices when someone sinned would come in and they would have to take their animal and they would tie their animal to the horns on the, on the, on the, on the, on the altar. Then, as I said last week, they would have to lay their hand on that innocent animal, transferring their sin to them because you are represented in some way in the animal, and Christ ultimately takes your place. And when they, when they would lay it there, now the animal has to be sacrificed on the altar, and the, the fire is there. Even all of the um, instruments, the fork, the, 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 all of the, the pieces, the grate, everything is made of bronze. Justice. For your sin is served. And as you look at that innocent animal, as it beat, as it bleats and cries, as it is put to death because you sinned. You see what the parables that Nathan used? That little one you lamb. I came up as the man's daughter. Imagine if he sinned. That man would have to take that one little you lamb and take it to the sanctuary. And why? Leviticus 17.11 tells us why. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. Powerful. It's the blood. The blood of the animal had to be shed. The blood had to be poured out, 
next to the altar in a certain way. Uh, the blood would be taken and at certain times. The horns would be covered in blood. The symbol of the blood. It was the blood that was used uh, to make atonement for sin. So Jesus in John 10 and verse 11 says it like this. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Jesus came to take our, our, our place. He laid down his life and he shed his blood. It is seen as soon as you come in. In fact, the altar doesn't just, uh, just, isn't just sitting there. It represents the cross itself. It is the cross in type. And when Jesus died, type met anti-type. There was no more use for the altar anymore. His blood was shed, as we'll see, and it was shed once for all time. Let me tell you something, church. When you get into a bind, let me, you, got, you must learn to claim the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus will take you through the most difficult times. Here's what Paul says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not. Neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. That system was taken away. Look at verse 10. By the which Will we are by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Look at this, once for all. That was it. When Jesus died on the cross, you didn't have to take an animal anywhere anymore. That that purpose was over. Jesus died for your sin before you were born. Hence, he is called the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The sanctuary teaches it well. The horns represent power. If you study prophecy, horns always represent power. And it is, it, the, the altar was set up, if it's the cross, it is to show you that although the cross was a place that appeared to be a place where Christ was at his weakness, in fact, on the cross, Christ showed his greatest power and strength. It was the power of the cross that banished Satan from heaven for good. And it's the power of cross why I'm a Christian. Let me tell you something. If it wasn't for the cross, if it wasn't for the blood that Jesus shed, where would I be? What hope would I have in this world? With all of the mess I've made at times in my life, with all of the times I've failed, with all of the, of, the, of, the, of the foolishness I got involved with, if it wasn't for the cross. At the end of the day, it, as, as faithful as my mother was as an Adventist, as faithful as my grandmother was and her mother was, as faithful as they were as Christian Adventists, as faithful as many I grew up with at Faith Church were, at the end of the day, I had to have my own experience at the cross. 
I had to spend time at that altar. I had to get to know that, that innocent lamb that was brought, the innocent lamb who took my sin and was laid on the cross and died. And as his blood dripped from that terrible tree, with every drop that was shed, it made a space for freedom and for liberation for each one of us. I'm a Christian because I couldn't do it myself. In fact, when you study the sanctuary, one of the things that's powerful about what, what you learn is there's only so much you can do in the sanctuary. All you really can do is carry the animal in and get to the altar. After that, the priest has to take over. And it's the same way today, church. A lot of us, <laughs> a lot of folks' Christianity is messed up because they think they've got to go all the way to the, to the most holy place and figure out everything for themselves. You don't. The first few steps of the sanctuary you're involved with. But after that, you've got to trust that the priest is going to go into the holy place and into the most holy place. And he's going to carry out everything that needs to be carried out. Because on this end of the sanctuary, you're forgiven. But on the last end of the sanctuary, your sin is blotted out. And it becomes as if you never sinned. That's the power of the sanctuary message. You don't have to live in regret and in gloom. You don't have to keep flashing back to what you did. The world does not have to tell you you are this or you are that because the world is going to try and convince you you belong to the world. But my Bible through the sanctuary message tells me that when I enter into the gate, I can... Sing God's praises. Why? Because once I step in, I step onto holy ground and God takes over. The question is, will you enter the gate? Will you accept Jesus? Will you move into the place where salvation can be found? That's the sanctuary message. It's the first part of it. The first part of it is that I am powerless to save myself. I'm not allowed further in. I can't even see over the fence. But if I'm humble, like David, and I admit where I've been wrong, there is a process. Salvation is in motion. A process that will cause my sin to be paid for and a process that will cause my sin to be blotted out. No other religion does that for you. Did you all know that? Every other religion, you got to figure out a way to work your way into perfection, into paradise, into nirvana. Only Christianity says, nope, you can only come but so far and God takes over. But you got to believe. That's why praising is so important. If you're not having worship at home where you sing hymns and praise God together, you are, you are stunting the spiritual environment and atmosphere of your home. You've got to praise God in your home. Praise him when someone is sick and in the hospital and it seems there's no way out. Praise him when someone has messed up and fallen short. Praise him when people don't like you because you're a Christian. Praise him no matter what's going on. It is in your praises that God's spirit, the scripture says, inhabits the praises of his people. The sanctuary message teaches that. And as you come in, God shows up, even the ashes, even the ashes 
had a special importance. They symbolized the fact that the whole thing, that everything was done, that everything was dealt with in a very definitive manner. They were very careful with how they dealt with the ashes. You couldn't just take the ashes and dump them. The great sat at the very same level as the mercy seat. The mercy seat and the great were at the same level. Why? Because on the front end, justice and mercy are equal in the sanctuary. David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The law at the time, the law of Moses said, death was the penalty for what David did. He had taken a life, he was supposed to die. He had committed adultery, he was supposed to die. In this case, God shows David mercy, mercy available to all of us. And David, a couple years later, some say, it was about a two years later, when David writes Psalm 51, he actually writes it. And if you study Psalm 51 carefully, and if you, if you look at it in reverse, it is literally the sanctuary message backwards. That's Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. That normally happens in the most holy place. He starts there. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He says, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. That thou mayest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desires truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. I won't do the whole analogy, but when the priests would eat the showbread on the Sabbath, the showbread represents the word of God, uh, the Christ, the word, his body, and it, it brought truth to his inward parts. That's why he says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sin. David was embarrassed and ashamed. He says again, and blot out all mine iniquities. Then he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Church, this is not just a statement. It is a promise. If you're willing to go to God when you've failed him, the Bible is promising here that he will make for you a clean heart. He will take out the heart of stone, as, as Ezekiel says, and he will replace it with a heart of flesh. He will give you a new heart. He will renew a right spirit in you. God promises this. And this is why the sanctuary also represents the process of sanctification. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. If the Holy Spirit goes from you, you're in trouble. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. And look at this. Once David gets to that point, he says, I then I will teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. When David has dealt with his own mess, David says, I will go back and be an evangelist. I will win souls for the kingdom. He says, deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, 
thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices, verse 17 is critical, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou will not despise. Did you get that? David foreshadowed way back then what God would ask for today. You don't have to go and find a lamb or a goat. You don't have to go and find a, a bullock to bring to an altar. What God says is, bring me your broken spirit and your contrite heart. God says what I want for you to do is take your ego, your sense of self and pride. I want that broken. You know there's no such thing as an arrogant Christian? That's an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. Christians, by default, are humble. And part of the problem sometimes in the church is that there is way too much ego, way too much arrogance. If you are a Christian, and here's what God does for you, he will humble you. You'll lose your job. You won't do as good in school as you thought. You'll, have, you'll, you'll wind up struggling with one of your children. you your marriage will be in God will find a way to bring humility to you. He loves you too much to leave you in arrogance. Micah 7, 18 and 19 said, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will do this. He will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the what? The depths of the sea. This statement by Micah is so pregnant with meaning. I want you to understand he says that God will not remain angry forever. This is what people want. People want you to think God is so mad at them. God, my Bible teaches me that even when God gets angry, he is looking for a way to be reconciled with you. He delights in mercy and will subdue our iniquities. Who subdues your iniquity? You know, iniquities aren't just when you sin. Iniquity is the pattern of sin in your life. My Bible teaches me that when it's time to deal with sin, God will subdue it. And the problem some of us have, I've said this before, is that we think we can grit our teeth, we can, we can, we can, we can muster the willpower to overcome our, our failings, and we can, we can somehow make ourselves right. But the harder you try, the more you fail. Because he must subdue your iniquities. I remember dealing with a young man who was addicted to pornography. We were at a purity retreat, and he came, and he was talking and telling me how he had tried everything. He put things on his computer so that those sites would be blocked, and then he figured out how to go around the stuff he put on his own computer. It kind of makes sense to me. but He said he'd go for periods of time where he would not engage in watching pornography, but then... Um, something would happen. He'd get upset and he'd go back to it. And he could not beat this thing. And he said, I, I, it's, it's, it's not my fault. It's God's fault I'm like this. He won't take it away. I've prayed and I've prayed. And, I, and my question to him was like, stop, hold on. Have you asked God to fight 
in you. He said, yeah, well, I've asked him to take it away. I said, well, how much time have you gotten getting to know God? It sounds to me like you're spending all your time dealing with pornography, whether to watch it or to not watch it. But how much time do you spend in the word getting to know Christ? The secret to victory over sin isn't that you gain the humanly willpower to no longer want the sin that so easily besets you. The secret to gaining victory over sin is to study the one who subdues our iniquities. It is to read the gospel story, read it in depth, understand who Christ is, get to know him in the letters of the New Testament, get to know him in the, in the Psalms of David, get to know Jesus in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. When Christ becomes your best friend, all of a sudden your desire for the things of this world will go away. That's why the sanctuary was set up the way it was set up. When you walk in, you are overwhelmed by the glory of God. Your focus was no longer on you. Your focus shifts to him. That's why the old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You want to get to know Jesus? Read the book of John. Read it while you read the book of the Desire of Ages. When you're done with John, go and read Mark. You're done with Mark? Read Matthew and Luke. You're done with those, read Acts. And then read Romans. Go back and read the Psalms. Study Jesus. Something powerful happens when you study Jesus. All of a sudden, the things of this world go dim. What you used to want, you don't want. As you begin to make friends with the one who can subdue your iniquities. The sanctuary. The salvation in motion. Patriarchs and prophets Page 726, the, this passage in David's history is full of significance to the repenting sinner. It is one of the most forcible illustrations given us of the struggles and temptations of humanity and of genuine repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Through all the ages, it has proved a source of encouragement to souls that having fallen into sin were struggling under the burden of their guilt. Thousands of the children of God who have been betrayed into sin, watch this church, when ready to give up to despair, have remembered how David's sincere repentance and confession were accepted by God. Notwithstanding, he suffered for his transgression, and they also have taken courage to repent and try again to walk in the way of God's commandments. Whoever under the reproof of God will humble the soul with confession and repentance, as, as did David, may be sure that there is hope for him. Whoever will in faith accept God's promises will find pardon. The Lord will never cast away one truly repentant soul, and he has given this promise. Let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me. And he shall make peace with me. Isaiah 27 and verse 5. See how it says, take hold of my strength? One of the things I didn't mention about the altar when you come into the sanctuary is the horns represented the power, the strength of God. What the law of Moses allowed was that if you got in trouble, you could run into the sanctuary, and if you held on to the horn, you were safe. 
So if you were accused of murder and you didn't want them to exact a punishment on you, you could run, don't miss this church, you could run into the sanctuary and you could grab hold of the horn. And there are two Bible stories where this actually happens. What the Bible is telling you in Isaiah 27 and verse 5 is, when you are in trouble, church, grab hold of the horn, grab hold of God's strength. And watch this, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 55 and verse 7. I'm going to ask Jackie and Janae to come up and just sing a chorus while we think about where we are. And do we need to spend time in the sanctuary? Do we need to grab hold of the strength and the power? What have we given for God and what have we done for God? Where are we with God? Desire of Ages, page 462, says it like this. Men hate the sinner while they love the sin. Christ hates the sin but loves the sinner. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.